Hello, Internet friend. I'm David Ravel, and this is Value Side for the Weekend. For all of our articles and podcasts, visit valueside.com. Well, today, what a week from balloons to blow ups. It was an explosive week for Wall Street. It began with last weekend's shooting down of that Chinese spy balloon, which had leisurely drifted over much of the United States the week before. But just as the headlines from the balloon started to fade, then former New York Times reporter and Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Seymour Hersh published an article accusing the United States of blowing up the Nord Stream pipelines. Overall, it was a very tough week for President Biden who, as a veteran of Washington politics for over half a century, has seen it all. Ironically, just as Biden was beginning his career in Washington, another president, Richard Nixon, was also facing tough times. On Friday, we explored just how John Dean, the White House counsel at the time, summed up the situation for Nixon and how it parallels Biden's troubles today. Also on our docket this week was a look at those egg farm fires, an analysis of how countries' view of the climate crisis changes their outlook, and an introduction of the Wagner Group, that mysterious Russian paramilitary company. So sit back, have a cup of coffee, and join us as we take a look back at the past week. On March 5, 1946, Britain's iconic wartime Prime Minister Winston Churchill delivered one of his most impactful speeches, speaking before an assembled audience at Westminster College in Fulton, Missouri, and broadcast around the country. The Iron Curtain speech, as it became known, was a wake-up call for America. On that day, Churchill announced to the United States and the rest of the world that the global community was dividing. The former allies in World War II could no longer be seen as united. The then-Soviet Union would henceforth pursue its own path. From Stanton in the Baltic to Trieste in the Adriatic, an iron curtain has descended across the continent, and behind that line lie all the capitals of the ancient states of Central and Eastern Europe, unquote Churchill. This was the last time that the nations of the world divided as they are dividing today. Then, the divisions were purely ideological. Ultimately, the Iron Curtain divided those countries that were communist, in their ideology, from those countries who were democracies, or more correctly, democratic republics. It was a division that would last for half a century. On the one side, the communist countries of the Soviet Union, Eastern Europe, and China, while on the other side, Western Europe, much of Asia, and the United States. In the 1990s, after the fall of the Berlin Wall in Germany, much of those political differences seemed to just fade away. The former adversaries, the communists of the Eastern Bloc, seemed to mellow. The USSR became a more democratic Russian federation. The oppressive stern dictatorship of Mao Zedong came to an end with his death. And China made a concerted effort to revise its image in the West ultimately becoming the West's number one trading partner. For three decades, the world has existed in relative harmony, with the major powers at least united in trade, travel, and commerce. Today, 
that epoch is coming to an end. To paraphrase Churchill, a climate curtain is descending between the countries of the world. Now there's no doubt that the catalyst for this division has been the conflict in Ukraine. The collective West, principally the European Union and the United States, reacted to the Russian invasion of Ukraine essentially by expelling Russia from the dominant world order. First by cutting Russia off from SWIFT, the main financial settlement system, then by boycotting Russian oil and gas sales, and finally by the continued trade sanctions imposed against Russia. I believe the European Union has just instituted their 10th trade sanction. And make no mistake, Russia's invasion of Ukraine has been called the cause belli, the occasion of war, which has provoked the actions of the collective West. That would certainly explain why Russia might become a pariah state, a country without allies and without supporters. But that's certainly not the case. It seems that much of the rest of the world at least tacitly supports, if not actively engages with Russia. First came China, with their cross-border interbank payment system, SIPS, a complete replacement for the West's swift financial system, and Russia didn't skip a beat. While the European Union and the United States implemented stiff sanctions against Russian oil and gas, other countries, including China and India, have been happy to take up the slack. As a leading member of the emerging BRICS countries, originally formed as Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa, these countries have all remained extremely loyal to Russia. And surprisingly, there are indications that several countries would like to ally themselves with BRICS also, and by extension with Russia. Rumored to want to join the BRICS is Iran, and several other Mideastern countries, possibly even Saudi Arabia. And as you go through this list of countries, something immediately stands out. They are all countries united in their use of energy. Either they are major oil exporters, such as Russia, Iran, Brazil, and certainly Saudi Arabia, or they are significant consumers of conventional fossil fuel. That would include India and China. One way or another, these nations rely on oil and gas. Their economies simply would not function without fossil fuels. On the other hand, the collective West, and particularly the European Union, are making great strides to remove fossil fuels as their source of energy. In April 2021, the EU enacted their most recent legislation aimed at reducing CO2 emissions by more than half by 2030. That legislation is aimed directly at the oil and gas industry. After all, wind and solar and even nuclear does not produce CO2. Burning fossil fuels produces CO2, and the EU is well on its way to outlawing that pollution. Whether by circumstances or forethought, it's dawning on the BRICS nations that the climate control advocated by the collective West is not compatible with their current economic situation. The oil-producing countries cannot live in a world that will purchase only half the current levels of their oil production. And the world's largest oil-consuming countries, India and China, have shown no interest in becoming pollution-free, as difficult as that may be for many in the West to understand. For the BRICS countries, 
most of whom are struggling economically, it is a matter of dollars and cents. They simply cannot afford the more expensive but climate-friendly alternatives that the West is now mandating. Today, a climate curtain is descending. On the one side will be the climate-conscious West. On the other side will be the fossil fuel-burning bricks. Just who is pulling down this curtain is uncertain. But what we do know is that the bricks have decided that they won't live in this new climate-sensitive world, while the collective West is mandating that they must. <laughs> I have to confess that I'm an egg-for-breakfast person. A couple of scrambled eggs, a slice of toast, and I'm good for the day. So all of this news that there's something going on in the egg world certainly has me concerned. I've really noticed the egg crisis at the supermarket, where here in Pennsylvania the price of a dozen eggs has nearly doubled over the past year. And that should be our first clue. As anyone who follows the markets as we do will acknowledge, price conveys information. Generally, as prices rise, like our favorite breakfast food, something is happening with the supply side. The fact that prices have increased dramatically throughout the nation tells me that we are starting to feel an egg shortage nationwide. And that's what our media is telling us. The nation's news outlets are reporting on the rising egg prices and blaming a recent outbreak of the avian flu as the cause. They might be right. So far, more than 50 million birds have been euthanized because they carried the flu. And that's bound to have an impact on supply. And there's another factor at work here that is causing a reduction in egg supplies, and it's the number of egg plants who've caught on fire. Really, just giant coops. The latest fire occurred in Connecticut just last week. There, a major fire killed 100,000 hens and will likely mean that egg prices in Connecticut are likely to rise even further. And that's not a conspiracy theory. It's a simple statement of fact. A fire did occur, which did wipe out 100,000 birds in Connecticut. Where the conspiracy comes from is the assertion of whether or not this was a wanton act. Is it possible that someone or some group is destroying our egg supply? I can see why people may think that's the case. In the last couple of years, there have been over a hundred eggplant fires in the country, and anything is possible. It's the question that I propose we ask today. Is there a conspiracy to destroy the egg market? To answer that, we'll turn to the nation's number one egg producer, CalMaine Foods. Now, you may not know their corporate name, but depending on where you live, you'll be familiar with their two most popular brands, Eggland's Best and Land O'Lakes. Here in the Mid-Atlantic region, Eggland's Best is by far the dominant brand of eggs and is featured in every supermarket that I visit. CalMaine sells a billion shell eggs each year and has a 20% market-wide share. Far and away the dominant player in this very specialized market. In total, CalMaine manages 50 million laying hens. Now, my research indicates that CalMaine has suffered four major eggplant fires in the last four years. Incidentally, CalMaine does not disclose their plant fires in any of their public financial reports, so if you should find a fire that I missed, please post it in the comments below. Now, in 2019, CalMaine suffered two devastating fires. The first in Rice County, Kansas, claimed 80,000 birds, and the second in Palmer County, Texas, claimed a million birds. At this second fire, Palmer Sheriff Randy Grease 
makes a fascinating observation. Now remember, this was a very large facility to house a million birds, and Sheriff Grease comments that the fire moved from building to building in just minutes, implying at least that the origins of the fire were questionable. However, nothing further was said and no investigation proceeded. If there was one, it was not reported. Now, more recently, Calmaine had fires destroy their facilities in Farwell, Texas, which killed 800,000 birds, and just over a year ago in Dade City, Florida, that one killed nearly a quarter million. Now, unfortunately, in the company's annual reports, these fires are lumped in with the rest of property, plant, and equipment as a line item, so we cannot see the individual cost of the losses. Nor can we see the income loss from losing that number of birds. But it certainly helps explain why the nation's largest egg producer may have been under some cost pressure over the last few years. Now add to Calmaine's four fires and the 96 other fires, and we're beginning to understand why the price of eggs is skyrocketing. And of course, we cannot ignore the impact of the 50 million birds culled for the avian flu. So overall, we can conclude that the free market still works, and these higher egg prices are indeed the result of fewer eggs available on the market, first from the cold birds and second from those egg plant fires. Unfortunately, the question of who's behind these fires remains open. But the fact that Sheriff Grease wanted to go on record to let us know how quickly the fire spread from building to building is, it seems to me, our first clue. Zhu Liang was trapped. One of the great men in Chinese history, Zhu Liang, affectionately known as Kong Ming, was fighting his rivals from the neighboring province. Soldier, statesman, and scholar, Zhu would go on to provide the legal and economic reform for an emerging China. It was in the second century of the Common Era, and Zhu was in a pitched battle for his life and the life of his men. Surrounded by the enemy, things were looking bleak. If only Zhu could get his word to his friends and allies in the other neighboring province, they could come to his rescue. And in a moment of pure genius, Zhu grabbed some rice paper, formed a crude envelope, and under it suspended a candle, and the very first hot air balloon was created. Gracefully, it floated over the opposition army and right to his allies, who saved the day and the life of Zhu. To this day, these popular sky lanterns are known as Kong Ming lanterns in honor of their inventor. On special holidays and on New Year's, you can see the Kong Ming sky lanterns floating over cities and towns in celebration, each delivering a message of happiness and cheer. But at times, so many of these Kong Ming lanterns are sent aloft that authorities have had to limit the sheer numbers, as all those candles can be a hazard. Last week, another object also from China, floated over the United States. Although this object used the same lighter-than-air principle to float over the country, it was not in celebration of some holiday. In fact, most Americans saw the spy balloon's purpose as sinister. The Kong Mean Lantern is usually set off at night, its candles provide a point of light against the dark sky, and its message is one of hope and the coming rescue from difficult times. Like that other invention, the kite, 
the Kangmin Lantern is an act of pure joy. Their nighttime launch presents the simple and dramatic play of light versus dark, especially when dozens of lanterns go skyward together. But the events surrounding last week's Chinese balloon could not have been in greater contrast. Without seeking permission, the Chinese authorities set their balloon aloft, aimed at crossing a maximum amount of American territory, territory that included numerous strategic facilities, including Army and Air Force bases, as well as missile sites. Apparently, this was no accident. There are published reports that the balloon had some sort of guidance system, allowing it to steer towards objects it wanted to survey closely. Launched into the prevailing winds, the balloon first entered American airspace by flying over the Aleutian Islands, where the United States has some of the most sophisticated radar arrays in the world. Although it wouldn't take radar to see this object floating along the clouds, it was clearly visible by the naked eye. So by all accounts, a massive balloon, with an unknown payload suspended under it, was allowed to transect the continental United States without any interdiction as long as the balloon was over land. It begs the question as to just what was in the payload, and was it potentially harmful to the people below as it flew overhead? In World War I, balloons were used to drop bombs and gas canisters on the enemy below. Further, there is no report of any Air Force escort accompanying the balloon as it flew along. A fighter jet escort could have at least provided an instant response should the balloon exhibit some hostile action, but the U.S. military provided no such escort. And finally, there is an ongoing speculation that if the balloon carried an EMP device, such as a low-grade nuclear device, it could knock out electricity to a wide range of the 48 states. Now, we could speculate on and on about what might have been on that balloon's payload, and we're right to do so, because there are apparently many in our country's establishment who either did not appreciate or were not concerned about the risk involved in allowing a foreign party free access to our skies. It's not surprising to see the Chinese provoke a challenge to the U.S. sovereignty in such a manner. In fact, it's something that we should expect. The world is a dangerous, aggressive place with bad actors ready to take advantage of a sleeping America. If you own a bank, you are not surprised that there are bank robbers. However, you should be livid if the guards you hired to protect your bank let the robber walk out with all the bank's money. And by analogy, that's just what happened to America. The biggest bank robber in the world, metaphorically speaking, just strolled through our bank, took a look around, and planned who knows what. The information collected was invaluable, an incredible guide to finding our weaknesses and vulnerabilities. Most incredible in this entire event was the effort by American leadership to simply ignore that an alien craft was allowed to float free across the country. If not for a local newspaper article, the American people might never have known that the Chinese spy balloon drifted just overhead. It is the behavior of the American authorities that is surprising here. From the top down, the president, to all the secretaries, military brass, and on-duty stations, this 
was gross negligence, and it has the unmistakable whiff of a cover-up. There's an old Chinese proverb that says, He who hides his faults plans to make more. We Americans are captivated by the latest new technology. Announce a new iPhone, and thousands will line up to purchase it. Give us a new fitness gadget, and half the country will work out with it. Our appliances are becoming smart, and our automobiles high-tech and electric. But perhaps the place that technology has most influenced how we see the world is at war. For many, perhaps most of us, it was the Obama administration that transformed what was a bloody and vicious activity into a computer terminal activity. Those drones that Obama liked to use removed the soldier, and by extension the American public, from the actual battlefield. Sitting in an isolated bunker, miles from the battle, computer operators were able to initiate drone strikes, which eliminated the enemy. Now, we are told that this kind of warfare was preferred by the then-President Obama, as he ordered over 500 of these antiseptic airstrikes. Today, in so many ways, the war in Ukraine has brought us back to the ugly, on-the-ground reality of war the way it used to be. Although drones are in use in Ukraine, the primary fighting is mano a mano, a fight to death not so much removed from the way wars were fought since the Middle Ages. Standing at the center of this transition in the Ukraine battlefront is Yevgeny Prigozhin. Prigozhin is head of the Wagner Group, one of the most fearsome fighting groups in the world. But as you see here, Prigozhin is as equally at home in a chef's coat as he is in battle fatigues. And that's only natural. Before Prigozhin became head of the Wagner Group, he was famous as one of the best caterers and restaurant owners in Moscow. He was known as the chef to the president as he catered many dinners for President Putin and visiting foreign dignitaries. With the Wagner Group, Prigozhin has been at the tip of the spear in leading Russia's urban warfare in the Donbass region. In many respects, it has been the troubles in the Donbass that ignited the entire conflict. At the fall of the old Soviet Union, the Donbass region was incorporated into the southeastern portion of Ukraine. But the population there was not Ukrainian. It was and is ethnic Russian, speaking the Russian language, upholding Russian traditions, as well as the Russian Orthodox Church. For years, the Russians in Donbass have been subject to Ukrainian discrimination, as well as regular military incursions by especially the Azov Battalion, as well as regular Ukraine military. For years, the ethnic Russians of Donbass sought relief, and in 2014, the first of two Minsk conferences were convened. Unfortunately, the two Minsk agreements of 2014 and 2015 were total failures. Neither agreement stopped the fighting in the Donbass, and recent comments by German Chancellor Angela Merkel indicates that her objective, at least, was not to stop the fighting as much as to prepare Ukraine for a wider conflict which might include Russia. Be that as it may, just after the 2014 agreement, Prigozhin created the Wagner Group, whose objective was to come to the aid of the local Russian population. So for nine long years, the Wagner Group has been fighting on Donbass soil in an ongoing struggle 
that began well before Russia entered this war. Today, the Wagner Private Military Company may seem like any of the other mercenary groups found throughout the world, much like the former Blackwater Group or certain portions of the CIA. But what makes Wagner so different is that they are the leaders in the effort to defeat the opposition in Donbass. Unlike the covert operations of most paramilitaries, Wagner is at the very front of all these battles, leading the way and thereby allowing Russian forces to take the support role and prepare for other battles. Now, recently it was Wagner which secured the victory in Solodar, Ukraine, one of the key strategic locations in controlling the entire region. And in a political tour de force, Prigozhin got the Russian Ministry of Defense to acknowledge that it was indeed the Wagner Group that won the victory. As we are speaking, the battle continues for the capstone city in Donbass, Bakhmut, a city of more than 70,000 when the war began, should Bakhmut fall, it would mean that the entire Donbass would now come under the control of Russia and the Wagner Group. Now, recent reports coming out of Bakhmut indicate that as much as a third of the city may already be under the control of Wagner as they continue to advance. Should Russia go on to victory in Ukraine, not an impossible outcome, then much of the credit must go to a ragtag paramilitary operation called the Wagner Group, and their chef-turned-warrior, Yevgeny Prigozhin. Strange how so many conflicts begin at sea. For America, the 19th century ended with the sinking of the battleship Maine and the start of the Spanish-American War. America entered World War I upon the sinking of the Lusitania, in World War II, it was the attack on the port of Honolulu that caused America to enter the war. In Vietnam, it was the North Vietnamese attack against the USS Maddox in the Gulf of Tonkin. In each case, American public opinion was mobilized to oppose a great wrong. Americans have always held that those forces who precipitate such wanton acts are evil. Not a word that we'd like to use very often. But when brute force is used against innocent bystanders... Americans have universally condemned such actions. As you can see, America has gone to war to defend the rights and privileges of those who were attacked. The innocent passengers on the Lusitania, the soldiers and sailors on the Maine, the Pacific Fleet, and the Maddox, all were caught unawares by an enemy who chose to attack without provocation. Like an ordinary street criminal who lashes out for no apparent reason, these kinds of attacks can have far-reaching ramifications. War should always be a last resort, but when an enemy attacks from out of the blue, sometimes we have no alternative but to defend ourselves. But what if we are the enemy? What if the United States is the power that initiated an unwarranted attack, an attack which could put at risk thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of innocent people? Such was the attack that destroyed the Nord Stream 1 and 2 pipelines, pipelines which supplied much-needed oil and gas to Europe, energy that they would use to heat their homes and cook their food, energy that now is gone and leaves many to forage for firewood and other primitive methods of heating. So far, 
This has been a mild winter, but who's to say that that will continue, or if the alternative can be found in time before the next winter comes? Writing in a column in the open-source website Substack, Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter Seymour Hirsch presented the unnerving possibility that the perpetrator of this wanton act of destruction was our own president and his administration. It's an incredible allegation, and that's all it is right now, an allegation. A thought so dark that I can understand that many will want to just turn away and not confront even the possibility of such a thing. But we must not turn away. We must steel ourselves to pursue the truth, no matter where it may lead. The future of our country lies in our ability to maintain the rule of law, no matter who the offender may be. For those of us who were around back then, we remember the special agony that was the Watergate scandal and the impeachment of Richard Nixon. It was a traumatic event which seemed to impact every aspect of our lives. It was topic number one for every conversation. As a stockbroker back then, it cast a pall over the financial markets, which seemed to just drift lower day by day. In a word, it was a depressing time to live through. But it was absolutely necessary that we excise this cancer. Those aren't my sentiments. They're the sentiments of John Dean, then White House legal counsel, as he explained to Richard Nixon the issues. Quote, I think that there is no doubt about the seriousness of the problem we've got. We have a cancer, close to the presidency, that's growing. It's growing daily. It's compounding. It grows geometrically now because it compounds itself. Unquote John Dean, June 17, 1972. Dean goes on to say how the Nixon White House was now open to blackmail, that staff members might have to perjure themselves in order to not divulge the wrongdoings within the administration. If Hirsch is correct, and the current administration played any part in the destruction of the Nord Stream pipelines, then those same forces are being unleashed now. The president and those involved would be subject to the same kind of blackmail that John Dean was describing. And in order to protect the president, various secretaries and agency heads might be forced to perjure themselves in order to avoid disclosing incriminating evidence. It is a slippery slope that the president finds himself on, one that won't be cleared up until we find out who really did destroy those pipelines. If innocent of all these allegations, then President Biden ought to be the most vocal proponent of a thorough investigation, one that would prove his innocence and the innocence of his administration. That would certainly be the best outcome for the country and for our people. But to accomplish that will require that we all roll up our sleeves and demand that an investigation begins right now. And that's the value side for Friday, February 10. For all of our articles and podcasts, visit valueside.com. I'm David Ravel. ValueSide is independently written and researched. The views expressed are strictly my own. <laughs>